This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Hello, you're listening to Beyond the Ballot Box with me, Dashran Johan. Last weekend, the inaugural Unity Government National Convention was held at World Trade Center Kuala Lumpur. A running theme from the National Convention was that of unity and cooperation between former rivals. A lot was said about history and how never in a million years would any Pakatan Harapan politician have thought that they would be giving speeches in the Amno Fortress. But was there anything substantive in terms of the vision for the country? Joining me on the show to discuss all things this convention is Dr. James Chin, Professor of Asian Studies at the University of Tasmania. Welcome to the show, James. Good afternoon. Perhaps you can kick off this conversation by sharing your overall thoughts on the Unity Government's first national convention. Right. So my overall thought was that uh, it went off as expected. Uh, there was no big tefakal among the different parties. Everybody played their role. So in terms of uh, being a PR exercise, I thought it was quite successful. At least it sort of pushed uh, all the different parties together and they all appear at least on stage to be on the same page. I think for most people, for most Malaysians who are not involved in the political process, I think they see this very much as a get-together among all the parties in government. And this is really the start of the electoral campaign for the crucial upcoming state elections in the six states in Peninsular Malaysia. So I think most people will see it basically through the lens that this is a get-together as all the parties prepare and work together for their first uh, test, their first electoral test after forming the government last November. Now, you mentioned PR, and, and I find that very um, a, a good word that you use there because a running theme from this convention was that of bitter rivals turned comrades. There were plenty of slogans and cheesy poems being exchanged between former en- enemies, including Wee Ka Siong and Anthony Loke. Do you think they've successfully sold this unity government narrative to the public? So I think in terms of selling the narrative, I think you need to look at uh, two very distinct audience. Mm-hmm. One is, is, of course, people involved in the political process, and this involves uh, party members, supporters from both sides of the house. So if you speak to Pakistan Harapan Amno, of course, they'll say that uh, this was a very successful narrative. And if you speak to Perikatan, they'll just say it's terrible. These people <laughs> can't sleep together. They don't share the same dream. And then you've got the large part of the general public. So as I mentioned earlier, I think for the general public, they see this very much as a PR exercise. And for most people, I think they're very cynical about Malaysian politics. I don't think there's any more surprises. I think for a very long time, the Malaysian public understands that, you know, in Malaysian politics, you can't walk a straight line. And ever since, uh, you know, Mahathir switched to the opposition and brought down I'm not in 2018. People understand that the normal rules don't apply anymore. Uh, people can twist and turn. Uh, today you're supporting this side. Tomorrow you're supporting the other side. On the third day you may be supporting another coalition. So I don't think you know the media write up about this thing between uh, you know the pantun between Anthony Lok and Wee Kasiong. <laughs> uh, of course, it makes good news stories, but I think people are very cynical about the process. And I think people understand that, you know, this is all about showing unity. 
whether there's real unity or not, I think most people uh, will take a wait-and-see attitude. So in terms uh, you know, of, of trying to promote this narr- unity narrative, I think for the individual parties involved in the process, I think it was partly successful. But I think among the general public, uh, a lot of people that I've spoken to still believe that the gap between, say, AMNO and a party like the EAP, most people think that the gap is still quite wide, especially at the grassroots level. You talk about the cynicism among the general public, but in real terms, um, from your analysis, how stable is the unity government right now? Because there are attempts to topple the current government seemingly by Prikata National. Um, the Prime Minister himself um, has admitted this. Um, you know, when you watch, uh, you know, the, the, the convention, do you get a sense that this, um, you know, uh, hodgepodge of, of uh, partners that have come together to form this coalition, do you get the sense that uh, of, of renewed purpose, cohesive plan, cohesive agenda, so on and so forth? Or is it just a sort of PR stunt? Because we have seen even when AMNO and, and PASS previously, you know, when they first announced Muafakat National, there were similar conferences like this, right? Yes, there was. Uh, not only between Muafakat National, don't forget, they also held a bigger one, the Malay Dignity Congress. So right. all this has been going on for a very long time. I think the way to understand this is that you need uh, you know, some background to this issue about overthrowing the unity government. I think a lot of the talk about overthrowing the unity government comes down to a very simple, unwritten convention in Malaysian politics. So the unwritten convention in Malaysian politics that no federal government can be politically stable if you don't carry the Malay vote. So if you look at last November's uh, general election, it is quite clear the people carrying the Malay vote is essentially uh, Perikata National, uh, the, the big winners of Scott Pass, and uh, followed by Besatu and then followed by AMNO. So it is quite clear that uh, they have the majority of the Malay vote now. And uh, most people, at least in Peninsular Malaysia, understand that you know if you don't have the support of the majority race, i.e. the Malay voters, the government can't be stable. So that's the reason why the, all this talk about the government falling apart. Now, the other background to this issue is, of course, the anti-hopping law that was passed, make it almost impossible for individuals to jump across to the house because they will lose their seat. Previously, if you want to bring people towards your own party, uh, you have to go and grab them individually. Now you don't have to. Now you just have to make sure that the party executive, especially the party president, supports you. And because the entire party moves as a block, you only have to bring over the party president and the executive to bring over the entire block. A very simple example of this is what happened in November last year. Uh, I'm sure your listeners remember that initially Perikatan was gung-ho because they said that we had the support of GPS and we had the support of AMNO. But lo and behold, at the last minute, within 24 hours, AMNO said, no, we are moving towards uh, Anwar Ibrahim, even though there was substantial opposition to Zahid's position. But they couldn't do anything because Zahid was the party president and he had to control the executive. So AMNO collectively as a bloc, uh, and together Barisan National, they were all forced to move to Anwar's side. Same thing with GPS. When they move collectively over, 
they move over 23 seats altogether. So in some ways, uh, politics, I'm not saying it's becoming more unstable. I'm just saying it's easier to bring people over now because rather than going out to grab individual MPs, if you can capture the party president or the party executive, this means that the entire block can move over. So in the case of Perikatan National, it is quite clear they're looking at the coalitions in Sabah and Sarawak and trying to bring them over. So that's the reason why if you read the Malay block, right, uh, most of them are saying that the way to pull down this government is to bring the East Malaysians over initially and then get rid of Zahid internally in the party. We have a new leader, Amno, and Amno will bring the entire 30 MPs over. So, you know, within these two backgrounds, they can understand why there's so much chatter about uh, unity government falling down. Now, my own take is that all this talk about plotting to bring the unity government down, nothing will happen until the upcoming six-state elections. Right. Because the incredible thing about these six-state elections is that we have a real mosaic of Malaysia. So three of the six states are what we call the pure Malay heartlands. That's not Kedah, Tengganu, Kelantan. And the other is more mixed, Selangor, Penang, and Negeri And we know that the economic powerhouse of Malaysia is Selangor and, and Penang. So, you know, if you speak to those people controlling the batting rings, at the present moment, the batting is that you have 3-3, three, three. in other words, the status quo. Uh, the government will keep Negeri Sembilan, uh, Selangor and Penang, and the other side will keep the other three. Now, the problem is this. Anwar Ibrahim and the unity government must be able to claw back at least significant number of seats in Kelantan and Trangandu to show that they have Malay support. Because if you look at the results of uh, the November election, right, uh, PAS and Bersatu basically sapu all the seats in Kelantan and Trangandu. So that's right. the reason why they can go around saying that they hold the Malay vote. Now, if Anwar cannot bring back a portion of the Malay vote, right, then we're back to square one, i.e. what I said earlier, that the current government do not have the support of the Malay community and therefore is politically unstable. Now, Anwar talked about how if it wasn't for AMNO President Ahmad Zaid Hamidi, Malaysia would be in a very different trajectory right now post-GE15. But will this coalition, this current coalition, Madani government, unity government, whatever you want to call it, truly be able to carry out its anti-corruption agenda and garner public acceptance if Zahid is part of the puzzle? More than that, will the government be able to sell itself with its clean image if Zahid is part of the mix? The short answer is no. I think like uh, everything in Malaysia, uh, there's some nuances to this issue. Mm -hmm. So when they talk about uh, you know, cleaning up Malaysia, I think... Uh, for most people, right, Malaysian corruption uh, consists of two very distinct parts. One is the sort of petty corruption, which everybody knows that there are, you know, somebody who has done it. This is paying the policeman at the traffic stop. This is paying some government servants to get the paperwork done, uh, small little things. And then there's the so-called grand corruption, which is at a very high level of government. Uh, best example is that is the one MDB affair. So I think when they talk about clean up the government, I think most people believe that yes, Anwar is serious about the small C, the small corruption, the petty corruption. But in terms of the big C, the big stuff, I don't think it's possible to do it simply because those people involved in the big C are also the people controlling the levels of political power in Malaysia. 
And I think this situation has been around for a very long time. Everybody understands it. But the biggest problem, again, is something that you said. Uh, Zahi is, is, you know, is, is, is in the picture. He's got outstanding corruption uh, charges. Not only that, his best friend sitting in Kajang is also involved in 1MDB. So I think as long as these figures play a very prominent role in UMNO and prominent role in UNO government, most people have that attitude that you know the big C will carry on, but UNO will clean up the small petty corruption that we see left and right. Zahid talked about the possibility of this government lasting longer than even GE16. That means they're not just talking about this uh, current batch of state elections coming up, but the next general elections. Do you get the sense that this um, quote-unquote unity coalition will be a unit moving forward and perhaps even contest under the same logo down the line? So the way to understand this is that uh, Zahid knows very well that if Amno moves to the other side, Amno will be completely sidelined by Besatu. Uh, the reason for that is very simple. Uh, Besatu was set up specifically to replace Amno as the uh, Amno party in the middle of the mainstream uh, Malay voters. So he knows there's no space for Amno. So even if Amno jumps to the other side, they form a government perikatan, right? There will be a minor player. And also, Zahid is not acceptable to the other side for a host of reasons. So Zahid has no choice. So my take is that as long as Zahid is in control, Amno, yes, uh, they will stay with with uh, Pakistan Harapan because he has no space on the other side. Now, whether they will move together and become closer for GE16 will depend very much on the performance of the government, whether they can deliver uh, over the next two years. Now, in terms of the logo, the logo is a separate issue. Logo is mostly, you're talking about elections. So I think we saw that even during uh, last November's election, uh, PAS was using its own logo in certain states. And uh, if you read the newspaper in the last few days, uh, it looks like AMNO will be using the Barisan National logo. Uh, you know, for Kedah, then they won't be using the, the so-called Pakatan logo or the Unity logo or whatever. Uh, in any case, it's my understanding that there is no such thing as unity logo because we're talking about political coalition. Uh, unity coalition is not a registered coalition uh, according to the electoral rules in Malaysia. So I don't think we should worry more. Uh, we should worry about the issue. What we should really worry is that whether this government can bring Malaysia back. People keep forgetting that up to around 2012 and 2013, right? Malaysia was actually doing quite well. We had a fairly good economic growth. The economy was on track. Uh, there were some real reforms taking place. But then everything fell apart after 2013. So basically, from 2013 up to the present day, Malaysia has been going backwards. You know, the joke among uh, development economies that Malaysia has been taking two steps forward, one step back. So, you know, and the country was really, really damaged during the COVID crisis. Uh, I, my take is that the economy was really, really damaged. So that's the reason why, for the very first time, you hear stories about people living in middle-class neighborhoods running out of food, people to dip into the EPF, you know, just to buy food and, and keep the roof over their heads. I think it's much more important that we get the economy back on track because if anything happens to the Malaysian economy, I think that will have major repercussions for ethnic relations in Malaysia. And that is a much more dangerous thing rather than these sort of games that people are playing. 
Absolutely. I think you bring up an excellent point. Can this government um, bring this country back on track? And that's what we're going to be discussing after the break. On the show with me today is James Chin. He's a professor of Asian Studies at the University of Tasmania. Keep it here on Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Beyond the Ballot Box. I'm Dashan Johan and on the show with me today is James Chin. He's a professor of Asian Studies at the University of Tasmania. And we're discussing the first Unity Government National Convention that took place last weekend. So, James, um, the government talked about five tenets, so to speak, which they will be focusing on. Um, the first one is improving transparency and governance and, and plugging leakages. Now, this, I think, more than anything else is something that Anwar has repeatedly stressed, um, um, good governance, so on and so forth. How do you think the government is performing so far in this regard? I think it's uh, it's a bit unfair for me to make a comment on the government's performance. I think we have to be realistic. The government has only been in power for a couple of months. They just came to power in November. And I think there was quite a long learning period. Talking to people in Kuala Lumpur, uh, it seems that you know, a lot of the people moving the government had no experience in government. Uh, even the people that are no moves in, they were dealing with stuff that they never dealt with. A very simple analogy was that uh, in, in most governments previously, Amno was the driver. Uh, this time, they were no longer driver. So it took a bit of time for them to settle down. And also in terms of policy, I think uh, you know they still get to know each other. Uh, I think there hasn't been any uh, major policies done. I think they've done a lot of firefighting. Uh, my own personal take was that I was pleasantly surprised, and I must give credit to to Anwar Ibrahim for this. He did not pass a real uh, what do you call it, election budget when he passed down the budget. Uh, that was quite a sensible budget. He didn't he didn't waste money on shiny objects. It was all about putting Malaysia back on track. I think moving forward, you will see some major government initiatives coming up after the state elections, because as I mentioned earlier, the state election is crucial for political stability. Uh, assuming that the unity government will do quite well, they claw back some uh, Malay seats uh, and they show that they do have Malay support, then the government will be stabilised. Now, the problem with Malaysia is that, unfortunately, uh, as I mentioned, for the last 10 years, nothing has been done basically with the economy in terms of real reforms. But this means that this government has to make some very hard decisions. Now, to really reform the Malaysian economy, right, you really need strong political capital. We all know what are the major problems in the Malaysian economy. Uh, one is that we're very inefficient. Our productivity is basically dead in Malaysia. But more importantly, we need to reform the NEP type policy. Secondly, we need to increase wages across the board, and that is tied to productivity. We can't be a cheap country anymore. Uh, the reason is because cheap labor doesn't work anymore, because countries like Cambodia, or the Philippines, and Indonesia can just kill us off. There's no way we can you know, uh, beat them on this cheap labor thing. We have to move up. And this thing requires a lot of capital and it requires a real commitment on the government. You can see, right, our capital class, our business class, they do not want any reforms at all. In fact, they don't care whether Malaysia moves up to the next level. And I can say it openly because you look at what happened when we raised the minimum wage to 1,500, right? 
you know, all the major, uh, you know, manufacturers group, uh, businessmen group, chamber of commerce, they, you know, they were painting a doomsday uh, picture scenario. They say thousands of people will lose their job, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Everything will fall apart. Uh, you know, in fact, when they implemented it, nothing happened. Right. I, I don't recalling a lot of people suddenly losing their jobs, going on break lines, you know, begging on the streets, all those sort of thing. So basically the bottom, uh, the bottom line is this. The government has really, really hard decisions to make to move Malaysia up to the next level. They have to plug the corruption. And most importantly, the biggest and hardest thing they have to reform. And, and unfortunately, I can't say uh, that, that they can do it, and that is to reform our education system because our education system is not delivering what the country needs for the next generation. So you brought up a lot of important points there. So at the... Uh, you, you, let's let's touch on the economic uh, economic ex- aspect first, because at the convention, the government talked about the need to boost economic growth as a catalyst for development. Um, this is of course important, right? We need to boost economic growth. But the question is, was there anything concrete mentioned about the economic vision of the government? Do we get a sense of what the long term economic vision this government is trying to achieve? The short answer is no. Like I said, uh, they're all concentrating on these upcoming six-state elections. So nobody wants to paint any long-term uh, scenarios for Malaysia, but all this will come around. Uh, I think you have some very, uh, what do you call it, uh, uh, good uh, people in government, uh, people who understands the real reforms uh, to be needed in Malaysia. Uh, there are people who can put in plans. Uh, I don't think we should worry too much about the grand vision. I mean, the, if you talk about grand vision, the guy with the biggest uh, <laughs> grand vision is, of course, Mahape for Awesome 2020. Nothing happened. Uh, I think the problem with Malaysia is that the vision is one thing, uh, but we always have problems with implementation. So unless, unless we resolve the issue of implementation, I think uh, whatever vision we come up with uh, will be difficult. But as I said, the key reforms leader is to bring Malaysia up to the next level. And the key implementer, implementers in, Malaysia, in our Malaysian system is the civil service. So if you don't reform the civil service, unfortunately, we'll be back to square one. I think you bring up a great point about, you know, sometimes these grand visions, you know, it's just PR and then ultimately perhaps it amounts to nothing. But I ask the question because it seems like um, you know, every few months there are some policy suggestions or proposals. Some might be good, some questionable, but there's very little clarity um, on what the end goal is and and the steps needed to take. Um, the, the steps needed uh, that one needs to take to get there. For example, Anwar always talks about going up against billionaires, tunes, tansries. Now, from my vantage point, that's great, right? But so far, there hasn't been any radical ideas about restructuring the econ- economy or our tax system, for example, to take the money from these billionaires, tunes, and tansries um, to make it uh, to you know distribute it more equitably and so on and so forth. What do you make of that? That there is their rhetoric, but we don't see that, you know, very clear policy plans to sort of match the rhetoric. Well, the bad news for you and your listeners is that going after the rich, the billionaires, uh, all the, the big capital class in Malaysia, uh, that is all talk. It is not possible. Uh, the reason is the nature of our political system. Uh, these people, they are not involved in the political process, but they fund the political process. 
So therefore, it is not possible to go after these people. Secondly, you can't go after these people if you're planning big changes in the economy because these are the people who can deliver the big changes. So it's sort of a give and take, but normally with this capital class, uh, you don't go after them, you negotiate with them. Uh, yes, there are actually a lot of, uh, uh, what do you call it, good plans, especially about tax system. There's been discussion, but these discussions are not done in public. Uh, I think everything will come around in the next budget. I think they understand and they're hoping that they'll do very well in this upcoming six-state election. Uh, they will have a period of political stability and the budget towards this end of the year, I think you will see uh, several surprises. My, my bottom line is that uh, everything is riding on these six-state elections. I think to try to second-guess what they have, uh, what they're planning to, I think it, 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 you know there's no point in second-guessing because uh, their ability to turn any of their ideas into practical reality right, uh, depends on the political capital. And the political capital uh, depends on this upcoming six-state election. So that's the reason why I've been saying that, you know, this six-state election is going to decide the future of the Anwar government. Since you've mentioned six, the six states elections uh, many times, right? So that is crucial from, at least from your vantage point, um, to, um, you know, what happens next, the following chapters um, in this Madani um, unity government. Um, what are the variables we're looking at? If it's status quo, like you mentioned earlier, three all, um, three states for Prikatan, three states for this uh, unity government, um, will the government then be able to uh, move forward at a, at a faster pace? Um, what if, you know, the government does well in, in a state like Kedah or Trangano? Um, or what if they, they perform terrible in a state like Penang and Selangor? Maybe even if they don't lose the state, but lose a lot more seats there compared to before. Um, what would these three different variables mean for the government? Okay, let's start the first one. If it is status quo, then the government has very limited uh, uh, space to move. Uh, it means they can't do any major policies uh, because they'll be immediately planning for the general elections. Uh, if they do really well, in, in other words, uh, they win the three states or maybe even they win Kedah in Kelantan and Trenganu, they claw back uh, some Malay seats and they can show that we have some uh, significant Malay support, at least up to the 50% level. And then the government will come up with uh, really uh, big big ideas and big policies because they have the political capital to do it. If the government does badly, uh, say that you know the opposition made significant gains in Penang and and Selangor, then I would argue that Anwar Ibrahim government will be unstable at least until the next general election. There is a small possibility that uh, people uh, parties may defect if the government does badly. But my reading of the situation is that. If the government does badly in the upcoming six-state election, the current unity government will hold for at least until the next budget circle. Uh, people are not going to move immediately. They will still wait and see. But I think a lot of people uh, in the background, what is at, at the back of their mind is that uh, they're thinking that, you know, if the government doesn't have the full support of the Malay community, right, and the Malay community will keep agitating through things like Martes, Malay Proclamation, which is basically uh, Malay Dignity Congress 2.0 and all the other stuff, then the government will spend all the time uh, firefighting, so nothing much will be done. And that's the reason why I said that you, know, you have a prolonged period of political instability until GE16. 
Now, a lot of people, including myself, were actually arguing that GE15, the one that was held last year, was supposed to return political stability. But now we know that the Malaysian electorate has funny ideas. I think one of the reasons why a lot of people got it wrong, including myself, on last year was because of this chunk of new voters in the young people, which everyone concentrated on. But there was another large group of people which were totally ignored by all the Malaysian watchers. And these were people who were not registered. Remember prior to the last general election, right? There was a big chunk of people who were not registered. So even though they're eligible above 21 years old, for all sorts of reasons, they refused to be registered. But because of automatic registration, they suddenly found themselves on the electoral roll. So it was not only the young people came out to vote, but it was also this unregistered block that came out to vote. And these people, uh, we don't have any background the way they vote. So these people play a major role in GE16. There's been plenty of talk about parties uniting, but at the convention, the government also talked about how it's in its interest to maintain unity among the people. But my question is, how? Has the government done enough to provide an alternative vision for Malaysia? For example, one where the masses are united by class. Because for one, Malaysia is highly polarised across racial and religious lines. Even many Harapan supporters are incredibly racist. Two, I'd argue that it's been a while since Malaysians have truly been united. I mean, tolerant, sure. I mean, that's our thing, right? Tolerancy. But united? How do you see the government carrying this agenda forward? In terms of the big picture, the really, really big picture, I'll argue that there's basically... Uh, three separate visions for what Malaysia is supposed to be. Mm. Uh, one is, of course, what we might call the conservative version of Malaysia. And that conservative version of Malaysia says that uh, Islam will play a more prominent role in public space. Malaysia is increasingly becoming more Islamic. The second vision is, of course, uh, the vision that says Malaysia is becoming more modern and more circular. And the third vision is what uh, the people of Sabah and Sarawak wants Malaysia to be. So we talk about three very distinct visions. The problem is the vision of Malaysia becoming, becoming more Islamic is highly polarizing uh, because it doesn't matter how you play around the statistics. The reality is that about one-third of the Malaysian population are non-Muslims and even among the 60 or 65% of the population who are Muslim, right, there is no agreed consensus of what, what is Islamization of Malaysia, what does an Islamic state of Malaysia looks like. So this is a highly, highly polarizing debate. Now, you mentioned the word class. I can guarantee you that is the thing that all the elites in Malaysia fear. Because if you have class politics in this country, right, uh, they can kiss their wealth goodbye. <laughs> so there is no way that we will have any form of, of class politics in this country. Um, I think we will see more racial and religious line being drawn. The thing that worries me is that if you draw a line you know, based on, on, on racial stuff, uh, then there are areas for you to maneuver and negotiate, like what you had in 57, 63, and up to the 70s. But if you draw the line along religious line, uh, then there is no space for negotiation. That is where the, the, the real problem lies. Uh, in terms of unity, I think the reality is that you will never get unity per se in Malaysia. 
what you want is that people will have multiple identities. Uh, they can be Malaysian, they can be Malaysian Chinese, Malay, Malaysian, Malaysian Indian, or whatever. I think that is the best we can hope for. To expect everybody on the same page, as I mentioned, is impossible because there are basically three large visions uh, for Malaysia, and each of these people uh, stay in their own land. Uh, they do not want to negotiate with the other side. So increasingly, it will be highly polarized. So basically, because of that, uh, that's the reason why I think this unity government was the very best outcome from last November. If the other side had gotten in, I think we will be in trouble because the other side is only promoting one vision. At least with this unity government, all the three visions I mentioned are represented. Uh, they may not get along very well, but at least they're represented on the top table. If the other side got it in, I can guarantee you that table is only reserved for one lot of people. And I think that is dangerous for a country like Malaysia. It seems like your projection for Malaysia's future, you know, we will never be united around class. There will not be a class struggle politics in Malaysia. Um, we will truly never be united as one people. Is that like a kind of cynical approach to the country's future? Uh, no, not at all. What mm. I said was that we are all Malaysians, one, but we can also be Chinese Malaysian at the same time. Right. We can be Indian Malaysian. We can be Malay Malaysians. Mm. Right now, the debate is that you can't. You're either Malaysian or you're Malay. Do you know what I mean? Yep. They force us in the corner. I'm saying that we can have multiple identities. Uh, if this is actually very common around the world. You go to any country, both developing and, and developed countries, people have multiple identities. I don't understand why in Malaysia, right? You can have only one identity. If you're Muslim, you're Muslim. You're Christian, you're Christian. You're Buddhist, you're Buddhist. It's a city that you know you can't have multiple identities. And yet, day to day, we all have multiple identities. Uh, we go and work in the office where it's a multiracial environment. So obviously, people see you as a Chinese Malaysian, as a Malay Malaysian, or you know, as an Indian Malaysian or Iban Malaysian, whatever. So you know, the reality is that we all have multiple identities. I'm not cynical or pessimistic about Malaysia. As I said earlier, if we can make fundamental, real reforms to the economy, if Malaysia becomes a rich society, then we stand a very good chance of promoting a modern, progressive Malaysia. Uh, the reality of Malaysia is if you look back in our, our very, very short history, right, a lot of crises will come around, uh, you know, because if the economy goes bad, then, it can't, then ethnic relation goes down the drain. So that's the reason why, you know, I believe strongly, and I think most people agree with me, right? We need to make Malaysia a rich country. Then we can talk about, you know, a lot of the things that people like you and I are worried about. And we want to build a better vision for Malaysia. James, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for the opportunity. That was Dr. James Chin, Professor of Asian Studies at the University of Tasmania. If you missed any part of our conversation, you can also check us out on podcasts. We're available on the BFM app, bfm.my, or pretty much wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Darshan Johan, and this has been Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.